different parts of our stories that are marked by darkness, by pain, by fear, by loneliness, by isolation. And God, as we come to your word, God, I pray that you would teach us that in the midst of all of that, you have come near. So God, teach us from your word this morning. We are in Acts 12. We're in Acts 12. If you've been with us, we've been journeying through this story of what Jesus is doing in the world after he has ascended to heaven, how his church is growing. And, and, and that moment we just had, this moment of lament, reflection, it, it's actually really um, timely for us because this chapter in the story of the church is, is one of the darkest that we're going to read in Acts. And, and this is how it starts, Acts 12. At the same time, these things are happening in Antioch. This, this beautiful, vibrant growth is happening. As, as we turn to this chapter, this is how it starts. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So this is how this chapter in Acts 12 starts. And, and if you've been following with us, right, the gospel has been advancing. And last week we talked about the church in Antioch, right? This beautiful, multicultural, beautiful expression, how the gospel is for everyone. And it is exciting and it is awesome. But now the story zooms in on the Christians that are living in Jerusalem. And following Jesus has been an incredibly exciting time for them, but it's also been devastating. Right, as the Spirit of God began to move and started to pull more and more people into this community, into this movement, into this thing of following Jesus, persecution has increased. Right, Stephen was martyred, the first Christian killed, and there were many people who were thrown into prison, and actually most of the Christians were forced to flee their homes into these surrounding cities. And for those who were left, life has been this mix of excitement because God is doing great things but it is excitement that is dulled and distracted by pain. And in this chapter, the story gets its darkest because Herod, the ruler of the Jewish people, the one who is supposed to bring goodness and justice and righteousness to the land, instead he has taken James, one of the leaders of the church, and he has killed him publicly. And what happened when he killed James, one of these leaders in the church, is the people of Jerusalem, they praised Herod because they don't like the church. And so Herod finds his way to get his hands on Peter as well, one of the other leaders of the church. And he finds him and he throws him in prison and his plan is to have him killed as well. And here's the question of this part of the story. What do we do when darkness seems to overwhelm our lives and our story? Like, what do we do when life gets its darkest and when death and evil seem to be winning and justice and goodness seem to be nowhere to be found? Because that is what is happening in the lives of these people. 
Right? It isn't just what's happening in their lives, but actually there's some of us who've walked into this room this morning, and this is the part of the story that we find ourselves in. And even if this morning we don't find ourselves in that chapter of our story, we have. At some point in our history, that has defined us. And if it hasn't yet, someday it will. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do when we open up our eyes and we see that this is the chapter of the story we're in, the the chapter of suffering, of darkness? And and what I want to do is I want to just show you what, what this church did and what I think we're supposed to do. Okay, three things. We pray we remember, and we proclaim. Okay, the very first one, we pray, right? What this church does when life seems most dark, what do they do? What are they doing at this point in the story? They're having a prayer meeting. All night long, they are praying, okay? But this is what's so awesome because Luke isn't just trying to tell us what they did. He's actually trying to do something really intentional. He's trying to show us something. He's trying to teach us something in the way that he writes this story. Okay, what, is it, what does it say, okay? Go back and kind of just quickly look at some of these things that it says. It says that Herod lays violent hands on some who belong to the church, It says that he kills James, he arrests Peter, he seizes him, he puts him in prison, and he is about to put him to death in front of all of the people. And the story uses that word over and over and over again. Herod is doing these things. He is the enemy that they have no power against. But the church is praying to God. The church is praying to God. These things might be happening, but it says the earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And it's it's obvious that the church is praying to God, right? They're the church. Who else would they be praying to? Why does Luke include that? Well, he includes it because he's trying to tell us something. Rarely does the Bible just tell us what happened, but as the Bible gives us its stories, it's always trying to show us something specifically through them. And what this story is showing us from the very beginning is even in the darkest chapters of the story of the early church, the church, God's people, they are actually the ones who have power. Because Herod might be doing these things, right? but they are praying to God. And Luke isn't just telling us what the church did, but he's answering the question, what do we do when life gets its darkest? What do we do when evil is winning? What do you do when your enemies are closing in around you? Do we gather our strength and stand with our might? Do we strategize? Do we build an army together and attack? We pray, we pray. That's what this church is doing. And actually for the history of the church, that is what Christians have always done. Prayer is the shield of the church. It is the sword of the church. Because prayer is one of the things that reveal what we believe about the world. And not just what we believe about the world, but what we believe about God. Because we tend to pray in direct correspondence to how much power we believe the one we're praying to has. Right, And so if we pray a little bit, the reason we pray little is because we believe that God has little power to affect our lives and our world. And if we pray a lot, it's because we believe that God has a lot of power to affect change in our lives and our world. Our prayer lives actually reveal where we have put our trust. 
And if you read the story of the Bible, one of the things that marks Christians, marks the church, the people of God, it is that they pray to him. Why? Because they have put their hope in him, their trust in him. This is Psalm 20. It's so awesome. This is what it says. It says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send help to you from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions, all your prayers. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and save with the might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This has been the rally cry of God's people throughout history. We do not trust in horses and chariots. We do not fight our enemies with the same tools that they use, the power, sword, money, fame, influence. No, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That is what has always defined the people of God and that is what defines this church. And so when Herod kills their leaders and when he has one of the main leaders of the church, Peter, the one who Jesus said he would build on his shoulders the church, When Herod has him in prison the night before he is going to be executed, they are praying for him. They're praying that he would be released. They're they're praying that he would be saved, but likely they are also praying the thing that Jesus told them to pray, that above all their petitions and over and above all of their ideas of what they hope and want to happen, they are praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what do we do when life gets darkest? We pray. And when we are praying, Luke wants us to know that we are praying to God. But when Luke says this, he doesn't just say this because God is powerful, right? Like that's part of what's going on. It's like Herod, God. God is more powerful than Herod, right? That's part of what's going on. But no, Luke says this because the God they are praying to has a story. And so we pray, but we also remember. This is the second thing, guys. The Bible is awesome. When are they having this prayer meeting? What's the festival? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. What is the day that this prayer meeting is happening on? It's the night of Passover. Guys, this festival this whole week and this day specifically has been practiced and celebrated for the entire history of Israel being a people. And it is about remembering who God is and what he has done and how he is mighty to save and how he has saved. That's the night that this is happening. Like the whole day, they're remembering the story that God is mighty to save and then their friend is in prison and they are praying to this mighty God that he might be saved. And this story, this festival, it tells a story of a God who sees. Right? It tells the story of when God's people were in slavery in Egypt and they're facing injustices and evil of all kinds. And it's the story of how God sees the injustices. He sees the evil. He sees their enemies and he acts in the world. 
And the story of Passover is the story of a God who hears. The whole world was and it is filled with gods who do not hear. You heap up sacrifices on the altars. You sacrifice your money and your crops. And some of the regions near the Israelites, they would even sacrifice their children. And in spite of all of this, their gods did not save them. They did not hear them. There was no rescue. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is a God who hears the cries of his people. They do not fall on deaf ears and he acts and he saves them. And he brings judgment on their enemies. He sends plagues. He comes in power. In the end, he saves his people through the blood of a lamb. He says, take this blood of a lamb, put it above your doorpost. And as God comes to bring judgment on their enemies, the judgment passes over all of the homes that are marked by the blood of a lamb. And he saves them. And he separates the waters of the Red Sea and and the people who trusted in him, the people who prayed to him, they walked across on dry land while the people who trusted in horses and chariots drowned in the sea. And the reason the psalmist proclaims and gives us a song to sing about how we do not trust in horses and chariots is not just because God is powerful, but it is because we know his story. We know what he's like. We know what he's done. And so these Christians, they are remembering the story. That night, they've been thinking about it all week. And they are asking that once again, God would do what he has done in the past, that he would hear, that he would see, and he would save. And he does. Guys, he does. This chapter of the Bible is amazing. Look what happens in verse six. Verse six says this. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, right? On that very night, It's like so close to destruction, but then it says that on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before their guard were guarding the prison, right? Total overkill, right? It's Peter. (laughs) He's just a fisherman, right? Like total overkill to keep this dude in prison. And then verse seven, it says, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and he woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real because he he thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and they went along into the street and then immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Okay, just real quick. The servant girl who answers the door, her name is Rhoda. When you're telling a myth and a story that didn't happen, 
you don't give the name of insignificant people in the story. The reason this girl's name is given is because this is a real story and it really happened. And the person who answered the door happened to be the house servant whose name was Rhoda and it happened at this exact house. And you can go here to this house and talk to these people at the time this is written. This really happened. And so this servant girl Rhoda came to answer and she recognizes Peter's voice. And in her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter is standing at the gate. And they said to her, even though they're praying for his release, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and so they kept saying, it is his angel, right? Such a funny conversation, right? They're going back and forth. Is Peter there? They eventually get to this point where they go, well, whoever's out there, it's probably Peter's angel. He's probably already dead. Maybe it's his angel. And it says that the whole time, Peter's still knocking at the door, okay? This is verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. They were amazed. But motioning to them to be, to be silent, like they're probably getting a little loud, causing a disruption in the neighborhood. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This story has been given to us along with many other stories in the Bible so that we would know that God is mighty to save. Right? The Bible is filled with story after story after story that tell us of his faithfulness. They tell us of his power. They tell us of his character and his love and his provision for his people. When life is its darkest, we remember that the one we pray to, he is mighty to save. And we remember his story, how he has been merciful in the past, how he has promised to be merciful in the future. This is who God is. This is what he does. So we remember who he is, but the third thing is we, we proclaim. We proclaim. Look, look what happens at the end of the story. Verse 18. It says, now when the day came, and there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, like there's a lot happening in the jail, right? They realize this dude is gone. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and he ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. It kind of gets into this kind of political thing that's happening, but he's, he wants to tell us this story because this story is directly connected to what just happened, okay? So He's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That is an awesome way to end that story, okay? It's like Luke is like, you know, we don't know if he's writing this, or he's got a scribe who he's like telling him what to write, but he's like, drop the pen, just drop it, right? Like that is epic. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
This is a story that we proclaim to ourselves of who God is, what he has done, and it is a way that we proclaim to ourselves what we know the end of our story will be. When darkness overwhelms the chapter of the story we are in, we do not despair. We declare, right? The Christian life is not one of questioning and one of anxiety. It is one of proclamation and proclaiming because many days life is dark. And when evil seems to be advancing, when injustice seems to reign, when the wicked prosper and the unrighteous seem to be experiencing blessing, sometimes much more blessing than us, we actually know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. When our lives get increasingly dark and when suffering begins to mark our lives, one of the questions that will sweep over you again and again in those dark moments is this. It is whether it is actually worth it to follow Jesus. Whether it is really worth it to follow Jesus. Because in this story, the people who are following God, the faithful ones, the righteous ones, the ones who are taking care of the poor and doing good in the world, they are the ones who are at the bottom of the heap. They are the ones being imprisoned and killed and Herod, the godless, self-glorifying, murdering man. He is the one who is rich and he is the one who is powerful and he is the one who sits on the throne and hears the praises of people while the Christians are the ones who are being killed by him. And our lives are actually gonna be filled with moments like this because there'll be many moments in our lives where we will watch as the greedy, selfish, self-centered people that we work with, they're the ones who get the raise that we deserved. We will actually watch as the unjust are elevated into positions of power. We will watch as those who are wicked seem to be the ones who are prospering, seem to be the ones who are experiencing blessing. And in those dark moments, we will be tempted to envy them to look at the wicked, to look at those who do not fear God, and we will be tempted to covet their prosperity, to covet their place in the world, to covet their story. But this chapter is meant to be an anthem for God's people to proclaim in those moments. Because in the end of the story, it is not the wicked who prosper, but it is those who put their trust in God. This story ends with Herod seated on the throne, hearing the praises from all the people around him. He gives no glory to God. He takes all the glory for himself and he is prospering until God kills him, strikes him dead, brings judgment on him for his life and his actions and his refusal to repent and choose God. On the spot, and what's awesome about this story, you, don't, you can read about this story not just in the Bible, but you can read about it in other historical letters. He just fell dead. All of his wealth is taken from him. All of his glory is stripped away. Everything that we were tempted to envy and covet, everything that we wished was part of our story is gone in a moment. It's laid in the ground and it is eaten by worms. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You are in the right story. There is not a better story for you out there. 
There is not a better blessing that is out there than is in here. Christian, this is what we proclaim with our mouth, with our lives, over our stories, in the midst of our darkness. When our lives get dark, we do not despair, but we declare these things. Our story is not one of questioning. It is not one of anxiety and wondering what will happen in the end, but our story is one of proclaiming. We speak and shout into the darkness because we know how the story will end. We know how our story will end. But maybe you're in the room this morning and you hear these stories and you think, that's really awesome for them. And it's great that God saw them and it's great that God heard their prayers and came to their rescue, but that is their story, not mine. And maybe it gives me hope that God can do these kinds of things, but at the same time, it's actually discouraging because in my life, he hasn't. I prayed and I didn't get an answer and I asked God to come to my rescue when it was darkest and he did not. And some of you, you walk into the room and that's your story. You hear about a God who's mighty to save and you're like, that'd be amazing if I knew that God, but I I tried to pray to him. I asked him to save me and I, I heard nothing in response. But this, this church, they have also had a moment like that. Because Peter is the second leader who's been in the hands of Herod. He just finished killing James. And no doubt they were praying for him, just like they're praying for Peter. No doubt they were on their knees begging God to save the life of James. And for some reason, he did not save James's life, but he saved Peter's. But this church, the night that they are praying, What is the story that they are remembering? It's the night of Passover. But Passover is not the story they are remembering. Because something has happened on another Passover night, another Friday, that has changed what they are remembering. Because they're not remembering the story of Passover. They are remembering the story that Passover was actually always pointing forward to. Not the day when God would save his people from slavery in Egypt by the blood of a lamb, but they are remembering the day when God would save his people from their slavery to sin and death and evil. When God would break into their world and into their story and save them through the blood of his son. They're not remembering a story of how God has saved in the past, And they are hoping and praying that he might save them now. No, they are praying because they are remembering the story of how God already has. When darkness closes in on our story, we do not pray to God hoping he will see us. We do not pray to God hoping that he will hear us hoping that he will use his power to save us, we pray to a God who has seen us. We pray to a God who has heard us. 
We pray to a God who has already saved us. The story that they are remembering that Friday night was the story of the real Passover lamb being slain. Because on the cross, a Friday night years earlier, Jesus, the lamb of God, entered into our darkness entered into the darkest parts of our story. And Luke actually tells us in his gospel, his first letter, that when Jesus was on the cross for three hours, the sun did not shine. Darkness covered the land and covered Jesus. Because what Jesus was doing on the cross was he was taking our place in the story. So that all of the evil and all of the injustice and all of the sin and all of the darkness of this world and your story would actually become his story. And on the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, he would die in our place, in our story, so that we could have his story. And having his story changes everything. It changes everything, right? It takes that moment of lament and sadness, and it actually takes that so that we are sorrowful, and yet we are always rejoicing, Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. In the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our darkness, this is what he says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, the the things that are right in front of us, this this moment, this circumstance, it is transient. It's fading. It is here right now, but it will be gone in a moment. But he says the things that are unseen, they are eternal. They are forever. That is your real story. Romans 8 says it like this. It says, what then should we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? What enemy could we possibly have if God is on our team? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God and who indeed in this very moment is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Do you hear what the Bible is saying? It is saying in your darkness, And in your suffering, the cross of Jesus Christ is the thing that speaks loudest. It it speaks louder than your suffering. 
It has a message and a brightness and a light that is brighter than whatever darkness is part of your story. And that means that the Christian life, it is, it's not one of complaining. It's not one of fear. It's not one of questioning. It's not one of anxiety. But the Christian life is one of prayer and remembering and proclaiming. Because no matter what chapter of the story we find ourselves in, our story is not one of darkness because we are the children of light. And while the world may bring darkness and suffering into certain chapters of our story, the one who walks with us is the light of the world and he has saved us. He's entered into our story, into our suffering. He stands right beside us in the darkest moments of our life promising that he is there with us and there is a day coming where that darkness will be erased from our story and erased from our world. And there's a day coming where he will bring us home when the enemies of God will be defeated, where justice will reign and goodness will prevail, where the one who sits on the throne will wipe every tear from our eye, where night will flee at the sunrise of the dawn of the kingdom of God. Some of you that have walked into the room this morning, your life and your story is marked by pain and it is marked by suffering and it is marked by a power and an enemy that you do not have control over that has brought oppression into your life and, and you're here today, not as someone who has come in with arms raised, filled with joy and excitement, but you walk in as someone who has been defeated and crushed by the world. And I'm here to tell you, God sees you. He hears you. He knows your story and he is mighty to save you. Jesus came from heaven to earth and he entered into our world of darkness and brokenness so that he could bring you to God, so that he could give you a new story, a better story, a story that does not end in darkness, but a story that ends in the brightness and the light of the presence of God. If you're here today and you do not have that story, I am telling you, you can today. Jesus died for you so that you could put your faith in him. He rose from the grave so that you could have a new story and a new life. This is our God. He is mighty to save. Let's pray to him. God, your cross speaks louder than our suffering. And Jesus, in these moments of life, there are gonna be times where you will, you will answer that prayer in that moment, yes. And God, there's gonna be times where the, the cancer will miraculously disappear and the, the oppression that we feel will be wiped away the injury that we have will be healed. God, there's gonna be moments in our life where that will be true of our story, just like it is true of this church and Peter's story. But God, that is not you saving us. That is just a foretaste of what you have already done. 
That is just a foretaste of what one day will be completed and fulfilled. And so Jesus, we come to you with parts of our lives that are broken. We come to you with enemies and evil that at times overwhelms our life. But Jesus, we proclaim that you are mighty to save. And we say, come, Lord, quickly. We long for that day in your name. Amen.